privilege for me to be here with Ray Dalio, who needs uh, no real introduction at all uh, to this room. Um, I'm hoping over the next 40 minutes we can spend some time trying to make sense of where we are um, in the quote unquote real economy, uh, but also in the markets. And I think one of the things that you've done so uniquely, especially over the last 18 months during this pandemic, was really spend a lot of time studying and thinking about the history uh, of markets um, and economies, literally not just in the most recent period, but over 500 years, as, as we've discussed. Um, and you've also thought a lot about the quote unquote economic machine, a, a sort of concept that you've developed. So help us understand where you think we are in, in, the, in the arc, if you will. Well, maybe I'll just briefly describe the arc and then I'll tell you where I think we are. Um, yeah, so about uh, two years ago, I saw three things happening that did not happen in my lifetime before, uh, but happened in the 1930 to 45 period. And there are things I really want to talk about. Then we had the fourth thing, a pandemic. They all happened before. So uh, the first is um, the going to zero interest rates, the creation of a lot of debt, and the printing of a lot of money to monetize that debt and seeing the rip, that cycle happen. Um, that happened 1933, that happened 2008. Very interesting. How does that money flow matter to markets and everything? The second is, um, large wealth and opportunity gaps causing a great internal conflict of value. So if I looked at the statistics, I like to look at statistics, like you say, the mechanics, I saw um, not only the wealth gap, but the political gap and all of that operating at a, at, at a level. And it has an effect, right? It has an effect on tax policy. It has an effect on that. But I had to go back to the 1930s and actually before to see such gaps. And the third was the rise of a great power to challenge an existing great power, the United States, China rising to challenge the United States and that changing world order. Because a world order is a system for operating. Our last one began in 1945 at the end of World War II. There's a war and then there's a new system and it was the American system and that's being challenged. And those three things individually and collectively did not happen before that. And then when I studied it, I, I, I wanted to study the rise and declines, not only of empires, but reserve currencies, because we're printing a lot of money. And what does that mean? And so I needed to study the Dutch, the British, and um, the American and that cycle. And what I saw was the same thing would happen over and over again. And um, I'll, if you want me, I'll take a minute on what that let's, looks like. Or you let's dig direct it. So what happened? What did you learn? Well, um, I learned um, that when there is bad finances, and we have bad finances. Right now. We, bad finances, I mean, if you're spending more than you're earning, and you have a balance sheet that has liabilities, more liabilities than it has assets, um, that's bad finances. You can fill that in by printing of money and continue to create debt. Uh, but that's not sound finances. Central banks have the ability to do that. And when they do that, that's a problem. So when you have, let's say, bad finances, and by the way, that's happened repeatedly in history. We can see how that's worked and the consequences of it. And we have to understand the mechanics of it. 
So bad finance. So when you have bad finances and you have large internal conflicts, um, that is a risky situation, particularly if you have a downturn, because those, the rich and the poor, and so on, the left and the right, those with different ideologies have greater internal conflict. And the internal conflict has a risk politically and it has a risk in terms of the effectiveness. When people are working well together to be productive, that's great. But if so, if you have bad finances and you have large gaps and you have the rise of a great power challenging an existing great power, and those things happen simultaneously, that's a risky set of circumstances. So I can get into the statistics of that. You know how many times have um, right. a rising power. So you take that and 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 so and then how, what are the mechanics of that? So for example, um, so what does it mean to markets? Um, so for example, if you look at every one of those movements when they immediately print money and do that, you want to buy financial assets. I'll give you, uh, just take another minute. A lesson that I learned. I was clerking on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in, um, in 1971. This was a year after college and before a business school on a su summer job. And it, and it was August 1971. I followed the markets a lot. And um, President Nixon, uh, on August 15th, 1971, gets on the television and he says, um, basically, you know that monetary system that we used to have and what money was, um, we're not going to have that anymore. It will not, not be, you can't get the gold. At that time, it used to be that money was like checks in a checkbook. They had no value. They would just get you the gold and then you'd have the gold and we're not going to do that anymore. And I figured, okay, now I walk on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange the next morning, brought, got there early, figure we're going to have some sort of pandemonium. And the pandemonium that we had, I thought it was a crisis. And the pandemonium we had was the stock market up um, the most in decades. And I went back and, and I didn't understand that. And I went back and I found out that the exact same thing happened um, on March 5th, 1933. It wasn't on TV, it was on the radio. And Roosevelt did the same thing. And the stock market and gold and all of those assets went up again for the exact same mechanical reason. So I learned two things. I learned, first of all, that I better study things that didn't happen in my lifetime before because they might happen again. That's what helped us anticipate the 2008 financial crisis. But I also learned that dynamic that uh, when you print money and create that, that's a hell of a stimulant, but it also means it means you don't want cash. It means right. that you want those other assets. So that dynamic is what's is the nature of what we're going through. Do you want financial assets though? You want um, when we it depends what financial assets are different things. You don't want bonds. You, uh, cash is a financial asset. You don't want to connect cash. You don't want a bond. It's going to have a negative real right. return. Like who wants bonds? You're going to have a negative real return. You want that? Okay. And you're not probably going to get the price appreciation through the bond. There are two ways you can make money. It goes up or it gives you right. a good yield. It's not going to give you a good yield, negative real yield. And it's not going to go up much more when you get down to that. So you don't want the bonds. Stocks are have an asset. They're, they're a reflation asset through, throughout history. So there are things that you want. You want stocks. 
you want uh, gold, you want um, um, tangible assets, you want real estate, you want the things that are basically anti-money. And you particularly want those when there's a large portfolio of those. Think about it right now, through history, what we accumulate are a lot of financial assets, and the only purpose of those financial assets is to take those and convert them into buying things. Yep. And when there's a lot of financial assets and we produce a lot more financial assets, then uh, they're all claims for those other things. And, they're pro and if you just went through the calculations and you were to say, okay, how much financial assets do you have relative to real assets or how much are there? There's too many relative to right. the real assets. And so you want to get into those things that have more of those intrinsic values. Uh, a company is. So, and that, those are the, right. throughout history, you see okay, that let me, let me throw a new wrinkle in, which was not in any of the history though. And I wonder, we can even ask this room, how many people in this room are, are, trying, are holding some form of cryptocurrency right now? And I know you own some Bitcoin. How many, actually, let's do that. How many people here uh, have some, any cryptocurrency at all? What, what do you think that is, 80%? It's like a lot. Okay, so that crypto, arguably wouldn't have been a tangible asset historically. Well, where, where does that fit in the uh, realm of this? Yeah, it's uh, um, crypto is um, like a lot of um, historic currencies. Um, there are some that have intrinsic value. It doesn't have intrinsic value, but it has a limited supply. And as long as it's accepted for payments and so on, and has a limited supply, if the demand grows more than the supply grows, it goes up and it serves that purpose. And it's, and, and it's done a heck of a job of programming, stood the test of time, meaning it hasn't been hacked and so on. Um, and so um, it's a viable alternative. And I think that probably, I think most of the people there are different reasons for owning it, but I think most of the people would say, is it a storehold of wealth that's limited in supply and maybe not controlled, and is it a viable alternative to a fiat currency? Right. I mean, like, don't trust the fiat currency. So how does it compare to the fiat currency? It, and so is it an alternative gold kind of thing? So there's probably an attraction in there, and it has an attraction for me in there. But then there's the question of it and you know, like how many in, in the audience, let's ask the question, how many in the audience have uh, some in gold? I'm curious. Let's do that. How many people have some gold? A lesser percent. Lesser percent. I'm going to go okay. 50% or less, 40 even maybe. Yeah. yeah. So that becomes an interesting question. So if, like for me, um, I, uh, I don't have a huge amount, but I, I have more gold than I have crypto. Okay. And so it's and, and my basic thing is rather than make it crypto or uh, rather than make it Bitcoin or or the other, um, I would say diversification is a good thing. We could get into the merits of the one versus the other. I don't know where right. you want to go with this. Sure. But um, but um, if but in any case, like, um, let me tell you that either one of those, <laughs> you know, Crypto can go like that, meaning right. uh, governments can regulate it, outlaw it, or it can be traced and certain other things. So, you know, uh, diversification is that, something I would I mean, emphasize. part of the argument, though, on crypto when it comes to the regulatory regime is or would be that it's already, it's already reached escape velocity. 
that that it's at such it's at a level now that there's that there's so much value around the globe that it'll be almost impossible to shut down. It's a little bit like Uber. I well, oftentimes uh, think about it like Uber because when Uber started, people thought regulators were going to shut it down, but they grew so fast, so quickly that all of a sudden regulators didn't really have a choice. They just had to figure out a way to deal with it. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, let. There are a couple of things in, in, in that. First of all, um, no, I think that um, um, it's easier to deal with now. Um, if you didn't, let's step back. Governments don't want alternative currencies, okay? Because and throughout history, we see that they want control over the currencies for all the various things. Especially when you have a successful currency. But if you have a lousy currency, that's what I mean. Like El Salvador. There's a, a, well, I mean, or there um, since 1700, there have been about 750 currencies. Only 20 percent of those are still in existence. And all of those have been significantly devalued at one point or another. Okay. So we don't have to pick El Salvador. We can pick. The German, we could t we okay. can go through history and pick the most credible ones. It's the norm, right? And so, um, in any case, what I'm saying is that you don't want if you're holding a currency, or it's an awfully good way to print money and get the money around, which is going to devalue. Because what is a debt that you're holding? Uh, currency equals a debt, right? And it means that you receive something, and now you have no interest rate on it, and they're producing a lot of it. Right. Okay. And so it's the way out. It's ultimately the way out. The, because when if you, keep it hard, out, yes. if you keep it hard, you have a big debt crisis. And if you don't keep it hard, you, you don't keep it hard. So history has always been the devaluation. So there's a point of that. And they want that. Right. Because if you look at history, um, if they don't have that. But think about that dilemma. The, just the fact that we're talking about the possibility of that dilemma means that you're going to want something else. And I don't see why you know, one has to be. There's not even enough choices of those right. types of things. So we, we could take uh, Bitcoin or you could take gold or you could take, um, let's say, the, the advantage of both of those is their money. It, you easily transfer it. It's very difficult, different than real estate, let's say, or equities. Right. Now, equities are pretty, in a sense, pretty portable. Pretty, pretty portable. Okay. And that's real value. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it, it has the same attributes as long as it's going to be real value. And, it's, and when inflation changes and so on, its value can change along those lines. So equities are a very viable alternative. Right. They're a good alternative. But you think of this category of things that can't be devalued. So the equity bull market that we're having is an extension of that. It's the same thing. Don't differentiate it. What, what, what did you think happened? We distribute a lot more credit and a lot more money. Everybody's, there's a flow of funds. There's a mechanics to it. You have a lot more money. You get the money. And then you buy things. An investor who gets the money, when there's an intervention, when the central bank buys, they buy a bond right. from an investor. And the investor gets cash. And what do they do? They invest it someplace else. And all through that process, there's the mechanical right. part of that. And that's what you're getting. So I don't think we even have to split hairs in terms of the one or another just to make sure you have enough of a diversified portfolio of that and know what kind of an environment we're in. And we're talking now about the money and credit part of that. We also should be talking about the wealth gap part of that because that affects it because there has to be a transfer of wealth, okay? Right. 
So that's going to affect investors, how that transfer taxes and those things are going to take place. And then you have to take a global view right. of these things, which includes China and other country, countries. So it's all of those things. Okay, I want to dig, I want together, to dig into I the second two pillars in just a moment, but I have two, two, just two, two follow-ups. One, when we talk about escape velocity of, of Bitcoin, one of the things you have also said, though, is that if it becomes too successful, governments will, you believe, ultimately shut it down. And so therefore, if you're right, you want to own it to a certain point of success, and you don't want to own it yeah. after that. Look, How would I'm, you define that? Kathy Woods, who was on the stage with me on Monday night, said that she believes, I believe her base case five years from now is that Bitcoin will be worth 10 times what it is today. See, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me because of the following reason. Look, I'm no expert in this, but look, there is approximately, let's say, um, if you look, uh, use there, gold as an example, and let's uh, and you make the comparison. There, there's a certain amount of reflation, certain amount of those kinds of things going up to make a price increase, and then there's a certain market share that gold will have, that Bitcoin will have, and other things might have. If roughly speaking, there's about um, if you take gold. And you take central banks' ownership of gold. I don't think um, they're going to be owned by central banks. Are not going to own Bitcoin for various reasons. I don't believe so. So, but if you take jewelry out of it and central banks, there's about five trillion dollars in gold. Right. If you take it for Bitcoin, there's a bit less than a trillion dollars. Right. So, if you were to say, I'm just going to have a portfolio of those two things, right now about 20% of that portfolio, if you were to say the supply is there and you say, well, what's the right amount of that mix? That's going to be something like, okay, it's 20%. And given the volatility and the total attribute, I don't imagine that the market share is going to be much greater. And so the question is, does that market share rise? Or where do you think the market share is going to go of that? Because So right. you, you said what I'm saying, because if it was to go like 10 times as much, then what will happen is somehow Bitcoin not only will have to be greater than the total amount of money that's held in that kind of non-fiat currency kind of thing, which, which seems like a, a stretch too far in terms of that. But it could happen if you, you have a problem with fiat currency as and as a percentage of one's own portfolio that those things rise more, perhaps, but it's very much a stretch. And so when I'm looking at it, I'm saying, let, let's just, I think, shouldn't we all pay attention to those not fiat currencies or those things where you can take them from one place to another and that they're accepted around the world and that they're not debt and so on. So it's that category that I think is a more interesting conversation than, and, and do you have a diversified portfolio of those things and what is good balance? That's the more interesting question, I think. And then the other question I think relates to where we are in the, in the, in the cycle, if you will, given that you've now studied these, these periods, how difficult is it to actually ascertain where we actually are and also how it ends? Usually leverage uh, can be a great thing until it's not. And we are now in another levered moment. And the question is where we are in that moment. Well, we, we know we are in uh, the late cycle phase of the, uh, the cycle in which um, there's a lot, there's but a lot. You and I probably would have said that 
four years ago. Oh yeah, no, but that's uh, that's, and we're just advancing in that. I don't mean much much of the differences in that type of thing. And you could tell the increment. All I'm saying is there are three. There's a cycle. There are three types of monetary policy, and you can almost judge it. There's first um, monetary policy. One I call it interest rate policy. You move the interest rates up and down. Then when you hit zero interest rate, you don't have that anymore. The next policy that you have is um, what I call monetary policy two, which is also called quantitative easing, where a central bank buys bonds from investors, and then it goes in the hands of investors. The money goes to other investments, and investments go up, and those who have investments do well, and so on, but it doesn't trickle down in the same way. Right. Okay, That's monetary policy. We're three. in number two right now? No, we're in number three oh. right, right okay. now. Monetary policy three is when there needs to be a redistribution of wealth. And the way that works is that only the federal government can determine where the money goes. Get The federal government gets to determine how much I tax and where I distribute it. And the central bank gets to determine how much there is of it, right. how much money there is of it. And so when the central bank works together with the central government to direct money to give it to others in that way, which increasingly then bypasses investors to some extent and gets money into the checks that we sent money around right. to to be able. And so we're in monetary policy three, where there's a coordination of monetary and fiscal policy to redistribute wealth, to redistribute money in that way. We're in that kind of monetary policy three. And then you could judge the size of the deficits and how they're being met. And so the debt problem is not a debt problem like we're not going to pay you off those debts because uh, at the end of the day, they don't choose to pay them. They don't choose to have a debt crisis. At the end of the day, it's just a question of how long it takes them to print more money to monetize those things. So in 1929 to 32, um, and 32 was when they printed the money, then stocks went up and yep. everything went up. Um, 1929 to 32 took a long time. 2008 took a, a lot less time. One, one took two and a half years. One took, um, you know, maybe nine months. This time took like that. And so the next time along those lines, that's what you're going to experience. And then you have that kind of devaluation. So you can see that that's where we are in the cycle. Each of the each of the stimulants has been greater than the one before it. So if you start in, let's say, 1980, and every interest rate increase and every interest rate decrease has brought the interest rates to a lower level. Every peak, yep. every trough in interest rates down to you hit zero. And then when you hit zero, every QE has been larger than the one Is there a way it. out of the cycle then? Well, it's it's like asking what do you do with um, what do you do with the debts? The mechanics of it is, yes, the mechanics of it is have an interest rate that is below the nominal growth rate yep. and below the inflation rate. So you must have an interest rate that way because think of it this way. If nominal growth in the economy, in other words, inflation plus real growth, let's say it was three and three or two and two, and that's four or five or six, um, and you kept interest rates at zero, <clears throat> then you are going to um, reduce your debt to GDP, right? Because you reduce mm -hmm. debt service. So if you look at the times that it's been most stretched in history, World War, the World Wars would have been the, been the most. If you look at the amount of debt creation and the monetization, 
you would go back into the 30 to 45 period and you would see how that operates. So they hold the interest rate down because um, uh, what you have is the central bank becomes the owner. Right. And the central bank, when they become the buyer, uh, they can tolerate whatever the central bank wants. If the free market goes away and the central bank wants it, that they could hold it. And they hold that interest rate while inflation rate rises. And then what you do is you see your lo lo loss of purchasing power, such as we're seeing if you hold it in debt. And that's one of the ways you deal with right. debt. Let's talk about the second pillar for a second, because one of the things you also talk about is the politics of this moment and the politics that you've seen historically, especially when we've seen the kind of inequality that we have and what it ultimately does to taxes and therefore what it ultimately does to the economy. So <clears throat> lay it out for us. Yeah. Um, well, the issue is really, most importantly, um, a conflict and a productivity issue. Um, if you have conflict that becomes dysfunctional in, uh, in operating, historically, sometimes that's the case. And do you think we're at that point? Is this, dysfun is this what dysfunction is like? It's, I, I, I think we're not. No, no, no. We're not at that point. Okay. Uh, we are going there. We're drifting there, okay, that the conflict, so there's a certain amount of, and that has a political implication. Um, and so there's, then there's a range of possibilities. Um, but I think that the system is going to change greatly because there are irreconcilable differences in some way about how do you deal with the money, wealth distribution kind of thing. And there's a battle. And right now, that battle has been diminished because a lot of people have received checks, and it's not as uh, contentious if, if it, all the money goes and we're all now feeling pretty good, it's okay. It's when it happens in 2022 and 2024, if we start to look at 2022, uh, midterm elections are 2024. And that's also the part of the cycle where, um, you know, it's, it's so easy when you give it a good stimulant and everybody's high, and it's great, okay, it's a different thing. When that wears off, and that stimulant will wear off, and it'll produce some other consequences, and you get farther towards 2022 and 2024, and so on, it's going to be a somewhat different picture, okay, a little bit more. And then the politics around that in terms of the polarity depends how bad it gets. For example, there's talk about the possibility there's talk about the possibility that elections would be contested, and if the if you can't and if you can't go by the rules of how do you right. who gets to sit in the seat, you have to resolve that kind of thing. Then you take the 24 election. Now, in the meantime, you're also having other things going on in the world. So, for example, China in this case is having its political changes in November. Yep. It's going to have its political changes, not probably she, but the Politburo and the other uh, political jobs and so on. Those things are going on. And so that clock continues right. to move. And as we start to imagine it over two, three, four or five years as investors, we should think about we, we should think about beyond the immediate. We have to think two, three, four or five years ahead, I think. You've long argued uh, that the critics of China misunderstand China, especially, I think, the investor class recently that has looked at a lot of the Regulatory crackdown and said, you know, we can't be in here. We can't be here anymore. Yeah, I, I, I think, 
I've been going to China since 1920, uh, since 1984. And for the first 20 years of going there, I didn't do any business. I didn't have any, I went there because I was curious and then because I liked the people. And then it was an exciting place in terms of the things that were happening. And I got to know from the lowliest people to uh, uh, other people, senior people, um, what the what the thing is. And, um, and I think it's not understood. And it's understandably not understood. Meaning, um, I think you have to answer the, the, the riddle uh, if you if you could answer this riddle, you'd understand China. The riddle is, um, how is it possible for a communist, uh, Marxist um, economy right. to be capitalist, have the second largest capitalist, produce billionaires and create the capital markets? That's not a new thing. That's been something going on since 1978. So you better have resolved that. And if you can't resolve that and understand why that is, then you don't understand China. You can't give the answer to that riddle. And the answer to that riddle was made clear by Deng Xiaoping and, and, and so on, when in 1978, um, like he said, um, it doesn't matter if it's a white cat or a black cat, just as long as it catches mice. And what he means by that is get rich. He said also, it's glorious to be rich to raise the living standards, and then to redistribute wealth simultaneously, to make them both operate together. And it's called, and, and if you look at Marxism, it's dialectical materialism. What is dialectical materialism? Dialectical means if two things that seem inconsistent and, and are at odds, and when they are in, uh, that produces product, that produces progress. And so what it means is, okay, here it is, uh, Marxism and capitalism, and then they're very practical people. And so to understand that it is not what you're, you know, it's not your grandfather's communism in that same way. It's something that's been going on there. And so where it is in terms of that evolution, if you take the, any measures of capitalism in China, and you, and I, I use a lot of measures, um, how much is wealth distribution, what are the tax rates, and so on and so forth, and you take capitalism and use equal measures across countries, what you have is about the same amount of capitalism going on in China as you have in the United States, and way more than is going on in Europe or right. is going on in other places. So I think it's important to understand them. In other words, what would they say and what are they doing? And I think that you're getting a move toward there are a number of things going on. We could talk about data management and so on, depending on how long you want to talk about it. But one of the things is the broadening of the benefits, the move to the left. And the move to the left is like a move to the left here. So if you were to look at, let's say, uh, their move to the left, I don't think is going to be a Bernie Sanders move to the left or those types of things. But there is a movement to redistribute or to deal with that kind of issue in various ways without knocking that over. So don't mistake it for um, what might be a return to something else, certainly under Xi, because if you follow Xi and you follow the policy and you know the policymakers around Xi, that's not what's happening. Now, you also have to understand that there's a whole different way about regulation. So um, one of the uh, one of the leaders described it um, as um, 
that in in the United States, he he was saying, and this is not ideologically, just matter of factly, um, is saying in the United States, it's a country of individuals and individualism, and that's of paramount importance. And so it's a bottom up type of place. In China, um, it's an extension of the family and the hierarchy, and it goes back to Confucian. And it's very much a top-down type of thing. And so it's much more regulated. And so when you see things like, let's say, um, do they regulate um, how much time your kids will be on video games? We would say, um, okay, that's really a parental decision. A lot of right. people would. Some parents might say, I, I, I would rather the government do that than me try to have a struggle with my kids all the time. But anyway, so you have to understand the approaches. Different people can have different approaches right. But that's basically what's going on. And then the question is, when I'm thinking as an investor, I, I, I admire uh, their thinking, the quality of the thinking. There are the choices that each makes, and there are pros and cons. The main thing is that each country, our country, is it going to be strong? Is it going to be capable? And there are basics of what that means. Do you educate your children well? Is there civil behavior and so on? That's what we have to focus on. I think if we have a diversification of a portfolio, it's dangerous to be in any one place. You want a certain chips there, a certain chips there, and some other chips well, elsewhere. What do you say? What do you say to the, the China critics who say China represents a, a, an almost existential threat to the United States, and that actually anyone here in the United States shouldn't be doing anything to help them? get to that place? Well, I, I think that um, China could be an existential threat to the United States, and the United States could be an existential threat to China, and so on. And I think that the more we move in that direction and don't understand and don't have contact and don't have interrelationships, the more likely that's going to be an existential risk. Um. We only have about five more minutes, and I wanted to actually talk to you a little personally, um, because one of the things that I've been fascinated about during this pandemic, and even before then, you had published a book called Principles, uh, which I've written about. Uh, but in addition to that book, um, and we talked a lot about the culture inside Bridgewater and um, the sort of idea of radical transparency, you've tried to take that radical transparency concept and bring it outside the four walls a Bridgewater to, to the public, if you will. Uh, there's software you can now, anybody in the room can go do it, uh, where uh, some of the same technology that you use inside Bridgewater is now available to the public to use on Zooms, uh, to effectively rate or judge uh, other people on the Zooms. I'm curious in the, in the sort of post-COVID world, I don't know if we're, hopefully we're past it or we're getting past it, what, what the last, uh, 18 months has, has made you think about in terms of that culture that, you, that you've been trying to create and what it means elsewhere? Well, I'm, I'm at a stage in my life, I'm 72 years old, I'm at a stage in my life where my goal is not anymore to be more successful myself, but just to try to pass along and then I'll do that for a year or two and then I'm done. I'm basically um, at You're that done stage. in a year or two? Yeah. I mean, basically. What are you doing in a year or two? Um, go quiet, do the things I like to do, and, and so on. I, I think that there's a, a life arc, you know, um, there's a natural with transitions. In the first third of your life, you're dependent on others, you're going to school, your parents are there. Second phase of your life, others are dependent on you, 
you work, you try to be successful. And then the third phase of your life, the natural thing, is to help other people being successful and try to pass along the things that are worthwhile. And I'm in that particular transition phase. And um, so one of the things was that um, and th that our culture, which is, um, say it in one sentence, it's a long sentence, an idea meritocracy, in other words, the best ideas win out without hierarchy, an idea meritocracy in which the goals are meaningful work and meaningful relationships through radical truthfulness and radical transparency. And that's, that's worked for me. In other words, if you can be honest with people and you realize that there's, there's that both the great relationships, but you can be truthful, radically truthful, like you could talk about the things in that way, then you can um, know what's true. Because if you don't know what's true and everybody's head and you have the politics, not only is that inefficient, but it also undermines trust. If you can have that trust and you can also use data collect data so that you could speak right. up about what's important to you and you can collect the data. That helps you make an idea of meritocracy. Anyway, there was those things that work. I won't go explain it all. And so what I wanted to do was to pass that along. And so, yes, I've, I've passed along two things. Um, on Zoom, there's now the dot collector, a way that people can um, pass along with their thoughts and also collect information data so that, let's say, if you go into an annual review, rather than an annual review, you have a daily review and so on, and you learn, and bosses should uh, be doing that all the time with their people in an honest basis or vice versa. People who work for somebody should do it with their bosses, I think. Um, that process uh, has worked for me, and I believe it, it works very well. And then I put out, um, also, I found that personality profile tests are really great. You know, things like Myers-Briggs and so on. So about 20 years ago, I started uh, doing these. I had uh, four or five that I would use, and then I decided I wanted to make one, and I wanted to, that sim that's a simpler cast, all the information, so on. So I put out one called Principles U. It's available for everybody. It helps people understand themselves and others. You took it. I did. Your wife took it. A lot of people take it and so on. I just made it available for everybody for free. And then there's a component of that principles you if you want to take it. It's online. And then there's a part of um, that that also, if you put in yours with somebody else's or even your whole teams, it'll tell you about uh, the group dynamic principles us. And that's why, you know, like knowing what you're like and knowing what others are like allows people to play to their strengths and avoid their weaknesses rather than right. to try to cover them up with politics. What do you think of uh, Zoom life? And I, the reason I ask is because I know you tried to create a specific, unique culture at Bridgewater, how much easier or harder you think it is. I mean, maybe it's actually easier because you, you, got, you used to always film, film meetings. That was always part of it. Now we all film our meetings. Um, I, well, I think what, you know, I don't know that I have a unique views, but I do think that um, there's there's pros and cons, and that it's a great alternative. The capacity to make conscious choices of whether you're doing things on Zoom, and then do you collect data or not, and that that's a real benefit, time benefits, and so on. So I think we're going to a world where then the in-person will be part of that, but it'll be more tailored to in-person, right. and we'll now have a more tailored mix for everybody, and they'll pick their tailored mix. And the other thing that you have coming up is this new book. That you have coming up in November. Yeah, this is the changing world um, order. Oh, okay. That's the um, yeah. You can order it if you want. It's um, you can order it. 
Um, and that's the study that I needed to do to understand where we were. And then because it, it was completed as a study, and I want to pass things along, uh, that's it, the changing world order. And um, it's a study of the last 500 years. It brings it right up to the moment, and it shows the patterns. Ray Dalio, everybody. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for the conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.